Healing can happen when people share their stories. Welcome to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. Discover true stories from those who were called to sit in the witness chair. Experience their journey through the legal process and beyond. This podcast brings to light the trauma and stress caused by testifying under oath and offers resources by talking with witnesses, key litigators, and mental wellness professionals to assist with different approaches one can utilize to prepare to take the stand and how to heal after the encounter. And now, here's your host, Juliet Huck. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Trauma Trial Transformation. Today is part two of my conversation with Jason Ventento and his fascinating story about testifying in front of the January 6th committee. I, I, I don't want to skip over a part that, that I find it to be really important, though. So, so you get out, you got some room, got some space, and you get a call from the government. So I, I can't, you know, I, that I want you to talk to me about that moment that when, you know, we're just like most people can't even describe being a phone call from the government. Like, what, yeah. what was that like? When you had no representation, you don't know what you're doing, you don't know what to do. Like a lot of people, they just get sucked into something and you're like, whoa, like the government, like how did it's that? very much a, a deer in the headlights moment. And mine started with, it started the year before when I had, I had started working for the local newspaper up here as a staff writer. And um, one of my assignments was to interview this literary agent that lives in the area excuse me, that I live in. And, you know, we hit it off. And I started telling her after the interview about this, this notion I had for writing a book and the story. And, and she th- was saying, Jason, you, you absolutely need to do this. And, and I'd like to represent you doing it. And I just got lucky with that part of it. And, um, she, but part of that was she, she told me straight up, you've been doing this stuff behind the scenes. No one knows it. You know, you, right. you could be anonymous at this point and put your head in the sand and, and, you know, people will forget, but if you really want to do this project, you need to get out there. You need to not do, right. you know, your contributions to these articles anonymously. So I allowed one reporter from the Washington post to use my name attributed to like a paragraph worth of the article mm-hmm. and that unleashed uh, an avalanche I could have never imagined happening. Wow. You know, it led to the Hulu documentary homegrown from uh, standoff to, to the Capitol. And, and during that, and that came out on the one year anniversary of January 6th. And I, I wound up being on ABC start here, which is mm-hmm. their big morning podcast and a clip of me made it on Good Morning America. And um, six o'clock the next morning, and I'm someone who changes their f- cell phone number out every few months because of different threats and whatnot mm-hmm. that come in. We'll talk about that too. And it's just easier. So I, um, I got a call at six in the morning, and I thought I was off the radar. I thought, you know, people can't find me unless I want them to. And it was uh, one of the lead investigators for the January 6th a select committee saying, Hey, we saw your, your, your documentary and uh, we'd really like to talk with you. Interesting. And that I, I can't tell you <laughs> it, it, it's hard to put into words, just the, the anxiety and the, the panic that 
at mm. sin because even if you're considered a, a friendly witness, which right. I knew I would be to a certain extent because I'd been out of the game for five years, you know, and then when I was in the game, I was there as, as kind of a pseudo journalist, as a propagandist, I guess, you know, originally as a journalist, but then, you know, mm-hmm. started making propaganda, but I never showed up to anything with a gun. I never really, you know, I was, I was there with a microphone and a keyboard and a camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'm very confident that, you know, I never came close to breaking any sort of laws. So I knew it wouldn't be, you know, anything that was going to necessarily get me in trouble other than, you know, potential blowback from these, these the community that I had been mm-hmm. plugged into. Right. And that people just would never understand that I would always be this oath keepers guy. And it doesn't matter what else I've done in life, whether that's, you know, having my first museum show at age 24 for my visual artwork or, you know, any of the other things I've done, it would, I would always just be the Oath Keepers guy. Yeah. And, and that really kind of, you know, I had to weigh that. And what I came to was, you know, what I've got to demonstrate to my daughters, you know, if, if you have the ability to do good, especially if you've helped to, to, to screw things up in the first place, well, then you got to do it. Right. And so I, you know, talked it over with my family. I had no idea what to do. I mean, and, and it's not like you can just say no when, when a right. select committee to right. investigate on behalf of Congress comes no. knocking on your door, you can't say no. They'll just send people to come get you and make you do it. That's part of my issue with witnesses and you know, just jurors, you're not able to say no. But I, one of the things that you mentioned in your book that I, I think a lot of people don't know are pro bono programs inside of large firms, large law firms, which was your situation. And I've somewhat been aware of this over the years. I've, you know, there's also organizations, uh, public counsel, places like that. But can you just, if somebody didn't know where to go, like how did, you know, in a short kind of, how'd you get them to pick you up as a pro bono? I, I got lucky again. You know, the universe kind of, I feel, <laughs> was saying, all right, you, you got to go through this rough patch, but we're get, I'm going to help you out. And so on that, on the um, Hulu documentary was, was a gal who's on the front lines of the fight against extremists, Mary McCord, who was mm-hmm. a previous attorney general for national security. Mm-hmm. You know, there was just something again in my gut that said, I want to know who this person is. You know, Mm -hmm. I, I, there was just some sort of draw to reach out and I I had reached out. um, And of course this was at the height, not quite the height, but you know, still the tail end of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so I just tried calling Georgetown law and she, she's the director of Georgetown laws Institute for constitutional advocacy and protection. Mm. So she's doing a lot of really good work there. And apparently she had been reaching out to me organically trying to get a hold of me. So, but we were missing, you know, I wasn't in the right voicemail and she wasn't, you know, she didn't have my (laughs) new number and we just didn't connect. And so I I reached out to one of the journalists that I knew a guy named Mike Levine, who's an investigative reporter for uh, ABC, I think who was involved in the, the Hulu documentary and he happened to, to know Mary and, and connected us. And wow. so I, I told her, look, I had just kind of started calling different attorneys, asking them beforehand. And they, they were not the right fit. They were, mm-hmm. you know, not a, a great, it just wouldn't have been worked out as well. But Mary 
you know, she wanted to hear my full story and really go in depth, which I just, at that point, I just owned everything and just, you know, mm-hmm. every little thing, I could, every detail I could give her, I gave her and she recommended, she's good friends with Rafi or Raphael, mm-hmm. who is one of the partners over at Aiken and Gump mm-hmm. and, um, and a great guy. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, we're still friends to this day and stay in contact. So she said, I may know someone that, that can do this. So again, I went through this whole interview process where they do a deep background investigation on you. Mm-hmm. So you better be telling them the truth because, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if there's someone with the superpower of, of research and investigation, it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's the people who work for firms like Aiken yeah. and Gump. Yeah. So they, they, they went and checked everything out. And, um, they decided they were going to represent me pro bono and Great. that what that just saved, you know, my, wow. <laughs> it, it really helped my family out. I, I just can't tell you how much you have to wonder if you didn't find them and you got pulled into this situation. This is one of the reasons this podcast, I find it's so important because, you know, just trial prep alone, it, it's not that lawyers are not good at prepping you for trial. It's not that, you know, but are we looking at trial prep? That's number one, if you even have somebody to prep you, which fortunately you did, right? And actually, I worked with Aiken Gump years and years ago. They used to be a client of mine forever ago and really great law firm. And how was the trial prep for you? Because I I read in your book, like, you know, they ask me these questions and things are going to trip me up. But did anybody ever say to you, like, how are you doing emotionally? Like, and and from the, an emotional standpoint of your mental health, was that ever brought up for you? And I'm, again, I'm not slamming any lawyers by doing that. I'm just trying to shine a light on this area. No, they really, you know, and, and I, again, I think I got lucky. I don't think I had an, a typical experience, but you know, they really were supportive of me to the point where out of his own personal money, Rafi helped me get, uh, you know, some basic home security when some threats came in. You know, because we we literally things are I'm going to knock on wood, but things are getting better financially a little bit with the book mm-hmm. and and the projects I've been working on since. But you know, at that point in time, I I barely had gas to get to the grocery store, right. much less hire an attorney right. because I I wanted to do the right thing um, and had to you right. know do this. So without them, I, I certainly wouldn't have been able to do it. And Fantastic. and they were very very compassionate and empathetic. Good. You know, once they knew my story and kind of got to know me as a person, we we really connected on a human level, and I think that really, really shone through. And and the preparation really was going through, and you know, so I'm someone who who is a bit divergent. I I think differently. I can't remember numbers. I can't tell you what my daughter's birthdays are. <laughs> You're like me. Um, before the <laughs> advent of smartphones, right? I I had the only way I could remember a number was by the shape it would make. Oh. At the same time, I'm able to photographically recall scenes and situations mm-hmm. that I've been in, which lends itself to the type of writing I do. But going up before Congress and not being able to to tell you a date of something mm-hmm. really can be a, a, you know, caused me a lot of anxiety. So right. they worked with me. We created, we went back and, and re-researched everything and put together a timeline cheat sheet that I could have oh, with me. You know, they, they handled all of the communication. Once they came on board, I had one phone off the record um, interview with uh, the purple team. I believe it was, um, you know, that, they tried to, 
to let me know as as they could that you know this wasn't really a hostile investigation my mm-hmm. my job was just to kind of give some framework some background right. history and a you know the precedence of the oath keepers and and some of the activities they've partaken in and you know just give my thoughts as an, an insider for a, a period of time um as to the rise of the Oath Keepers. So, you know, it, it really, it was different than a lot of the witnesses. Right. Still a very intimidating situation. So, so, t- so I, I want to have you walk me through like, okay, so you talked about actually the day before you testified, I want to talk about where you went into one of the DC museums that really moved you. It's like you talked about this moving moment that kind of gave you encouragement. Can you tell me about that visit to the museum? It's in your book. Yeah. So Ravi was on the board of directors of the national Holocaust museum. And, you know, during our, and he's, he's, his family's Jewish and he connected with, with me, I think over the story of why I left and, and the fact that I do have Jewish family, actually my, my cousin who is Jewish came out there for moral support during the, the mm-hmm. testimony you know, he got to meet my the Jewish side of my family. And uh, so we, um, he, he was able, I'd never been to the national Holocaust museum. And he's, you know, was able to set up for me and my cousin to go and, and go tour it the day before. And again, I think it's one of these, these moments where the universe had something to tell me in that mm. moment, because walking through it, I'd never been to a Holocaust museum. And, uh, you know, walking through it was just a very profound experience for me. The smells of, of the leather shoes and the, the wood and the, the train mm-hmm. cars. But more, much more so, the impact that really hit me was seeing the expressions on the, the SS troopers and the, the, the Hitler youth. Mm. I had seen a lot of those kind of smirking expressions mm. while at rallies and, mm. you know, tended to be on the peripheral more during my period of time, but it certainly became more so where, you know, it was becoming more and more racial. Mm -hmm. And that really hit home for me that we're seeing an echo of, of something that's happened in history and it's happening right now. And that's, that's continuing to this day. I mean, I I saw the legislation that, that is Florida just is pushing yesterday about, mm-hmm. you know, independent journalists and bloggers having to register with the state. I know, you know, I, I think oh. we have these echoes from history, you know, reaching out to us and, and now is our time to pay attention. We always ask ourselves, you know, why did the German people, why did the world let it get to that point in the 1930s, you know, pre-World War II and, we're in that moment now. I feel that right now is our time to really stand up and say, "This is this is not the world. This is not the direction we want the world going for our children." We need to stand up to to some of these authoritarian initiatives that are happening. So, um, it- and that's that's part of what I've been doing with my work after you know outside of the book and whatnot. I. I do these speaking engagements all over the country with Georgetown Law's ICAP and different nonprofit organizations, speaking directly to the people on the front lines, combating extremism. So it just, again, it seemed like this karmic cycle happening. Can you take me back though? I want to. I want to get back to that that visit. What in that visit gave you the courage? Because you also said that the day you testified, you mentioned this in your book, you had to calm yourself 
before you entered the storm. So did that visit from the museum help you do that? Like, what, what, how did those two worlds get connected before you walked in, walked in the door that day? It, it really helped focus me, I think, more than anything that, you know, I, I still have trouble wrapping my mind around why, you know, I was, I was put on the world's biggest TV camera right. and asked to speak. You know, there, there were a thousand other witnesses, but I was the one, one of the ones that they chose to put mm-hmm. out there. And I think 12 million people watched it. Right. But I realized that I have an opportunity that most people don't have and that, you know, it just felt emotionally like, all right, this is happening. I can't stop it from happening. So I might as well try to use it to, to, you know, say what I want to say, what I feel the nation needs to hear right now. Um, and if they need to hear it with someone on tat with tattoos on their face and a, in a punk rock t-shirt. Well, I mean, if, if there's a chance to listen and I have the opportunity Mm -hmm. to do it, then I need to do it. Good. And that's, you know, what the, I, I'm, you know, I'm a persuasion strategist by day and podcasting host by uh, the other half of the day. And, you know, you've hit on quite a few points of things I work with my clients on. One is, you know, visuals, especially for people that have fear about walking in and, you know, prepping for memory issues and things like that. But but what you just talked about, we're, no one's trained. I don't care who you are, unless you are a lawyer or media person to walk into a stage like that. So sitting in this room, just just describe the room to me. Sure. I, I think it really started, you know, hitting me the night before, really, when I'd, I'd cut down all communication. And, and you're right, there, there is no how-to book. There is no right. YouTube video right. on how to testify before, you know, one of our historic congressional hearings of our generation. But, you know, you, you just got to jump in and, and wing it. You just got to do what you can. And I remember getting calls from, I had cut communication down to just my core family, but getting messages from my family saying, you know, Rachel Maddow's talking about your tattoos <laughs> the night before. So word had gotten out, it leaked out somehow that I was going to be on there because no one really knew up until the night before that I would be testifying that day. And um, so I'd cut that out. And, and luckily enough, my cousin had been, had come out. So we just spent some time <laughs> locked in a room trying to, to distract, you know, for me to distract myself. I listened to a lot of calming music and, and just trying to, to, I, I relate, I used to be a fighter. I used to fight competitively and it was very similar to the feeling one gets walking into a cage mm. to, to, to fight. Wow. Um, you know, my coach described it to me as, you know, it's, it's learning how to be in a car crash and you can't, you can't practice being in a car crash Mm -hmm. other than going out and being in a car crash. Right. So it's, it's really just kind of in the moment and, and doing the best you can. So, you know, we, we, we go in and there's this whole process of getting into the Capitol building. You have to go through, you know, bomb sniffing dogs and they, they big metal barriers that come up around your car. And it's, you know, it's the archetypal stereotypical mm-hmm. car, you know, black SUV, all shiny yep. and bring it in. And actually I still have, I got it right here. They, they give you these credentials yep. that uh, you got to walk nice. around with. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was instructed that, that uh, I was, I was, 
going to be, I couldn't be anywhere without three armed guards with me at any given time. Yeah, I read that. So, you know, I had these, these DC police officers who, who frankly, you know, they were the ones who, who really paid the price for January 6th. Right. And here they are protecting me, you know, putting their lives on the line for me. Um, when I may have had a part to play and, and, you know, there was right. some part that I played in, in the lead up to January 6th and here they were protecting me. So, you know, you we were in the green room and it really, it's just trying to, to keep myself together more than anything. It really is just trying to, to not just completely melt down and break what, down. What'd you do to do that? Like, where did, where did you find the strength inside yourself to like do that? Is that just from your past that you're. I mean, there's a lot of people that are looking for, you know, some kind of tip or, I mean, how did you hold yourself together? I focus mostly on this is how I can make things a little better for my daughters. You know, for me, my daughters are kind of the switch that that gives me courage. And that was true when I was in the fight world as well. When mm -hmm. you're in a fight and you you've got to you got to flip a switch that allows you to take this person that you really don't have a, a, a beef with, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm a fairly nonviolent person. I know that I, I've done things that may suggest otherwise, but you know, the reason I was a competitive fighter is because I wanted to find my own weaknesses. You know, it, it didn't have anything to do with the other person it had to do with me. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, this was very much the same mindset of, I've got to find that switch, you know, my motivation to, to get through this and do the best I can. And for me, that was thinking about how I can make things maybe just a, a modicum better for my daughters in the world they're going to inherit. Wow. So, you know, and, and showing them like to do the right thing is not easy sometimes, mm -hmm. but it, someone's got to do it and no wow. one's coming to, to help us. You know, there may yeah. not have been someone better for me for that particular testimony. So right. I had to do it. Well, that's um, so what that's I, what I did. And, and I, I'll be honest with you. I thought that my testimony was gibberish. I didn't know if any of what I said made sense in the moment. Did you feel like you were having an out of body experience at the moment when things were just kind of blurry, but you're talking, was it like this kind of, you know, that's what trauma is. You separate yourself from the moment. I mean, it certainly, it certainly felt surreal and dreamlike. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm, I'm in this historical place. I'm in this historical moment and it's me, right? It, it, I'm not watching this on TV. I'm not reading about it. This is me and my experience right now. Wow. And that really almost froze me was that realization of, oh shit, I am in a historic <laughs> yeah. moment right now. You are and the historical all moment. All the cameras of the world right now are are on me. Yeah. And that was really different. So when they that was really driven home, when they first bring you out, you kind of walk out. They keep you in a green room, which is in the back, and they walk you out. Um, and you got armed guards around you, and they, they sit you at the desk before they swear you in. And they have about 10 minutes where you have literally a hundred photographers taking thousands of pictures of you just nonstop. I mean, they're, they're pushing each other and jabbing each other and, you know, pulling out big cameras and little cameras. And wow. it's just this, it's paparazzi chaos that seems to go because time doesn't seem to work right when you're mm. in one of these moments. And it just seems like time stretches out. Mm. And um, so you're just in this kind of loop where, 
all these flashes are going off and you're hearing the shutters and and then suddenly it's it's showtime and you're you're asked to stand and swear yourself in and and really i was i was just trying to get through it moment by moment and just focus on the conversation because and that's one of the the ways i did it was once it started once you know the the the, the congress folks were asking me direct questions I could just go in a conversation mode. Mm -hmm. Like I was just having a talk with this particular person on this particular subject. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really helped me that just kind of framing it. Like I could be having this discussion at a coffee shop or at a bar Mm -hmm. and, and just having a conversation. Versus kind of wiping everything out around you, this big ornate room and hundreds of cameras and all these people who just kind of one-on-one. So that would be a great tip for somebody who's, just kind of got through. So let's talk a little bit about your healing process. So, you know, that's, that's a lot. All right. I mean, that's, 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 that's a lot uh, mentally, emotionally, physically. So what was, what was your healing process after this hearing? Trying to do more good. You know, after that, I really began, that's when I began going on these, these, um, these speaking engagements. You know, I went, I went out to, Milwaukee and did a, a talk there with, you know, people that are on the front lines in the Michigan area. I mean, we then had the, the DA down in Pittsburgh come up, um, going out to the, the Pacific Northwest, but, you know, working with Mary and, you know, talking about it really seemed mm. to help. And, and people wanted me to talk about it and people that could make a difference wanted me to talk about it. So mm-hmm. for me, that helped quite a bit. I had just signed the contract of my book. We had been trying to sell it for a year beforehand. Um, but, you know, I remember walking through Ronald Reagan airport outside of DC and, and getting a call from my agent. And again, like we had just run out of money. I had no idea how I was going to move forward in the future and had just gotten through this second interview process on the record this time. And, and as the universe works at times, I got the call, Hey, we've got the contract, which was this great elation. Mm and and relief but at the same time it was now you have six months to write a book yeah (laughs) about you know the whole experience (laughs) what you always for right yeah so you know for and writing is a huge part of my how i deal with life and the traumas of life you know and i i do it fairly obsessively you know i i think my grammarly says in the last two years i've i've written and edited probably two million words pretty easily wow wow according to what Grammarly says. And so, you know, it's just, I've got these, these things that I use. It used to be at one point, martial arts mm-hmm. art has always been a part of it. Yeah. But I find writing for me, you know, the art, I tend to get more manic and mm-hmm. and have these bigger swings. Right. But with writing, it, it seems to be a natural mood stabilizer for me to be able to express myself. So, so you're also an artist, a painter. I saw some of your paintings, which are absolutely incredible, by the way. And you're finding healing in writing. So, so somebody out there who had to go through this, because you know the one of the main taglines to the podcast is, you know, we heal by sharing our stories, which I love that you said. The more you talk about it, you know, that's why I've always believed too that when trauma occurs and people hold on to it, you know, it just builds up to sickness or you know anger. Do you feel like you've kind of let go of? resentment, shame, anger, any of those kind of feelings? 
as you've been healing? Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and just by my natural programming and by the nature of the work I do doing local journalism here and, and writing about the topics I do, I mean, I, I, I say that half the town hates me on any given week, depending on what I've written, and it'll flip, you know, <laughs> right. in a short amount of time when I write something else that they like. But now that's that's moved out to half the people in the country hate me at any given time. Mm-hmm. And because of so much exposure that I got in that period of time, I mean, I was, I was on every – I had friends calling me and saying, I can't turn the news channel without seeing you. Right. <laughs> every major publication, and I was being – interviewed just back to even to this day i am i'm interviewed by a major news outlet probably once every two weeks at this wow. point wow. um and lesser ones sprinkled out so i have interviews every single week and and the speaking engagements have just gone in further but part of the anxiety is you know i was fairly unknown i mean yeah mm-hmm. I, I stand out in a crowd but you know mm-hmm. i i remember taking a train to New York city to be in studio with morning Joe mm-hmm. and it was Don Lemon's night show. I was also in studio there, but we had to get off the train in Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I remember a, a public bus as I got off the, the, the train and I'm crossing the street, uh, a public bus stopped and the driver opened the window. He's like, you're here. You know, I, I tried, <laughs> I tried when I was leaving DC, you know, getting a bucket hat and just trying to be as inconspicuous as I could with a mask mm-hmm. on and stuff. And of course my Uber driver is like, you know, I know exactly who you are, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's sure. your disguise is not working. Right. But, but your, but your, but your healing process, is it something that continues by you going out and speaking about it? Is there, do you feel like you're kind of past it or do you feel like this is something that it's going to stay with you for a long time and it's just moved your world in a different direction. Again, I'm speaking to somebody who might get called in this arena and being like, oh my gosh, my life's going to get turned upside down. But there's hope on the back end, right? I mean, where you are today, it seems like you've really been able to do a great job of coming out of this, learning lessons, speaking on it. Um, but is your healing journey continuing or do you feel like you're kind of past that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you know, that that's all been part of the formula and it's it seems to be working all right. You know, there, there's still a lot of anxiety. I, I find myself self-isolating more and more. Mm. You know, it, it, I go to the, the grocery store and I will inevitably have a stranger who knows who I am and, and coming up. And I never know in my head, are they going to try to, you know, take a swing mm-hmm. at me or yell at me? Or are they going to shake my hand and thank me for, for you know, the, the stuff I've done? Thankfully, it's it's the vast majority of it's been, you know, people thanking me. But that anxiety, I think, really is a major issue for me going from someone who was unknown for the most part to someone that is very well known. That That's a big part of it. And yeah. that's something I'm still grappling with today, you know, and that's mm, something bet. my kids are grappling with. You know, we've, yeah. we've actually had harassment coming from different families within the school district where I've literally had to you know, keep my kids home based on the, the school resource officer's suggestion, because, you know, there, there are going to be people that because of the stands I've taken, Mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're going to try to, to, to talk shit about us. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they they don't, they don't agree with, with, you know, how we live our lives or whatever it may be, you know, unfortunately it, and I try to insulate my kids as much as possible. 
mm-hmm. but you know, it creeps in and, and having to see them have to deal with that type of stuff also is something that, that really yeah. wears on me as well. So I've really tried to, to um, consider what impacts future work may have on my children as well. Right. So you're, uh, so it's not just your healing process. It's also your kid's healing process, your partner's process. Everybody's kind of working that process together. So, you know, I, I, I'm getting ready to kind of wrap up here, but um, you know, I, I like to ask every single person who's had to testify and gone through it and come out of it that, do you feel like healing is a choice in this process or do you feel like you just kind of have to go with the flow or like, you know, I mean, there's two questions I really should have here. One is telling the truth, you know, telling the truth. You've obviously been able to come forward to tell the truth, which is, you know, obviously extremely courageous to do in this kind of environment. So is telling the truth a choice and in the healing process, is it the healing a choice as well? As far as telling the truth, I would say within my moral code, I didn't have a choice. Now, other people have pointed out to me, well, not everyone who was, you know, asked, who investigated in that, that committee chose that same choice. I didn't feel I had a choice. And, you know, I knew I was going to be becoming more and more of a, a public figure. And really the only way to, to survive that is just to, to tell the truth, to own it and own everything. Because um, mm-hmm. otherwise it's just going to, it's, going to contribute to, you know, that, that anxiety and, and it's going to hinder kind of moving forward with your life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for me, I didn't feel like I had a choice in how I live my life and, and my, the code that I live by, but at the same time, you know, healing is necessary. It it is a very traumatic experience. One that, you know, the reason I want to do your podcast is because there's really no one that can relate to it in my Mm -hmm. life. There's right. no one that can, you know, my, my family went through it with me. And so they can to a degree. Um, but outside of that, people have no notion, you know, right. they, they right. see you on TV and, and, you know, they have these, these preconceptions about you mm-hmm. and um, it, it, it is something that's very, very difficult. And, you know, at times it, it, it's very difficult to deal with, but right. you have to, you got to move forward and you got to find the ways that, make it easier for that. And, and, you know, those, that, those healing processes, I think we, as a country right now, we've got to figure out healing Mm -hmm. processes because Mm -hmm. we've, we've got a lot of work to do. We've got a lot of healing to do. And part of getting to a better place is to, to, to be able to forgive and talk about things and move on and, and really re-engage with communication on a national level in between these, these tribal groups, these tribal divisions that have manifested mm-hmm. that have right. led us to this, the answer to getting into a better place is not more division and tribalism. It's, it's putting ourselves in uncomfortable places so that we can do the work of re-engaging in real conversation and real, you know, healing. We, we have healing. to heal as a country right now. Yeah. That's so good. That's so well put, Jason. That's just, I mean, I, I've been deposed, so I, I can sit in your shoes very quickly. And that's another reason that I want to do this podcast. Cause I, I mean, I've kind of been on every single side. I've been in the courtroom behind the courtroom. I've been sued. I've been, I've had to sue. I, you know, I've been on all aspects with the exception of the big stage that you were on. 
And I just felt like, you know, everybody said to me, well, you should know how you're in the business. And I was like, that doesn't matter. That doesn't, even though I've even had to be in the business, my deposition was the worst day of my life. And so I said to myself, I can't be the only one in this situation. So I, I am so, so, so grateful for you to come and talk to me today. I, I know you are a very busy man and you get paid for this. And I just, I'm anything that I can do to promote you and your, your great work and, truth-telling and healing, please, I hope you'll reach out to me because I'm just, I'm really honored that you would come and talk to me about this today because I think there's a lot of people out there that have never, have been sucked into things like this that they just, you know, like you said, it could even be the guy down the street. I've had friends pulled into corporate lawsuits that one day they just walk in the office, next thing they know, they have to find a lawyer and they call me and like, I got to find a lawyer. It's like, you know, so I'm hoping we can get a community together that starts coming together to talk, you know, it is hard, but let's get through it. Can we have a group, you know? So I am so grateful today, Jason, um, for you to come here. And can you let people know uh, where they can find you? And uh, let's uh, repeat the name of your book. Sure. The book is The Perils of Extremism, How I Left the Oath Keepers and Why We Should Be Concerned About a Civil War, which I'd like it known that that wasn't my choice in title. My title was just The Propagandist, but, you know, the, the, the publishers know better than I. So right. I listen to them on that. And you can find me the best way. I'm not on social media anymore at all. The only outlet I have other than my writing is I have a podcast and a, a kind of a underground Substack um, mm -hmm. where I, I talk about everything from hyper local politics to national issues to just what's on my mind. And it's all free at first, you know, it, it, it paywalls after four weeks, but it's the Colorado switchblade. Easiest way to find it is just Google the Colorado switchblade. And that's me. Well, thank you so much again. So, well, I want to say to my audience, I, I hope that you got out of this conversation as much as I did on doing the right thing, you know, and then finding a way as hard as it can be sometimes to really heal. So I want to thank everyone for listening and don't forget, go out and spread some love today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation. If you want to share your experience as a witness, please forward your information to info at juliethuck.com. For more information on Juliet's 30-year career in the courtroom, visit us at juliethuck.com. There you can find her books, The Equation of Persuasion, and 50 Ways to Get Your Way, available on Amazon. Remember to follow and subscribe to Trauma, Trial, and Transformation wherever you listen to podcasts.